Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 408 with Dr. Alton Barron. Alton is talking about creativity and how it, in fact, enhances your health. And so all the more big why to cultivate creativity and how to do so. So you get more ideas. You'll learn one, the scientific link between creativity and health. Two, why boredom is great for creativity. And three, the role of clutter and decluttering when it comes to creativity. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep408. Now here's Alton's story. Dr. Barron is a fellowship-trained shoulder, elbow, and hand surgeon. He is an associate clinical professor of orthopedics at NYU Langen and the University of Texas Dell Medical Centers. Practicing in both Austin and Manhattan, Dr. Barron has been a surgeon for thousands of competitive athletes, a team doctor for Fordham University for 15 years, and professional musicians, including the New York Philharmonic and Metropolitan Operas in New York for over 20 years. He publishes and lectures extensively nationally and internationally. He's a founder director director of the Nonprofit Musician Treatment Foundation and co-author of The Creativity Cure with his wife, Carrie Barron, published by Scribner in 2012. He's also a founding member of the Team Continuum Cancer Charity. So thanks to Alton for sharing some time and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Alton. Alton, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to speak with you. Oh, me too. Well, you've got a lot of interesting things going on in terms of your professional life. You do some work with creativity, and you're also an orthopedic hand surgeon. And I understand that sometimes these worlds come together when you are treating musicians' hands. How often does that happen, and how is that a special experience for you? Right. That is super special. And it's been a significant part of my entire career, my 20-year career. But it's very frequent because I've been kind of a, a team doctor for the New York Philharmonic and Met Opera for 20 years, really, and see a host of other musicians from all walks of music, from jazz to blues to rock and roll. It ends up being a big part of each day, actually. Yeah. I imagine that there's some extra intensity associated with doing that treatment because of, of what's at stake. I mean, everybody wants great use of their hands, but you know, even more so if it's, if it's your entire livelihood to be able to have great precision there. Right. It's true. I think it's twofold. One is clearly in, in our culture and in, and in many cultures, musicians 
can often be at the very highest level, but struggle to actually be able to pay the bills. So some of the highest level musicians really live relatively hand to mouth. So that leads them to become highly anxious and upset if they lose function in their upper limb, which is what they typically use to make music. That's one component of it. The other component of it is that unlike people who may do very creative work at a keyboard, that can be not a musical keyboard, but a typewriter, typing keyboard. Those people can often use voice recognition software and other things to get through their day in whatever capacity they're doing and continue their work. A musician who's creating the music with their hands needs that both for their psychological well-being, but also to produce what they give to the world. And so and those two components are so undermined potentially by whatever injury or condition they might be suffering from. But you deliver the goods. I hope I do. I think I do. I try to. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, we're going to mostly talk about creativity, but while we're talking about the use of a keyboard uh, for, for typing as, as opposed to uh, pianos and, and music creation, you know, right now, as we speak, actually, uh, one of my podcast teammates, shout out to Vita, who's been doing a lot of great work. She's having some wrist and finger pain, and my wife gets that a lot, too. Could you give us your quick pro take on, on what are some of the top do's and don'ts for office professionals who do a lot of typing and mousing to not find themselves in a painful situation? Right. Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one that's most important is that you say office professionals, but what has become much more common, if not ubiquitous around the world, is people working on the move or from home or from where, from the coffee shop where they live, et cetera, et cetera. So there are all sorts of ergonomic uh, snakes in the grass that we can suffer from. I know that my wife, who's a great writer, sits up in her bed, kind of popped to one side with her knees up and wrists flexed down and working on the, the small laptop. That's a, a disaster waiting to happen with regard to creating some of the typical tendonitis and nerve compression problems, such as carpal tunnel syndrome, one of the biggies that I'm sure most everyone who's listening is aware of, and I know you are. And But one of the cool things is that so many people come to me and say, I think I have carpal tunnel syndrome. And the vast majority do not. And one simple way to know is that carpal tunnel syndrome only affects the nerves and ultimately some of the muscles of the thumb. But the key component to it is numbness or tingling, especially when you're doing the activity and also at night. And so if you don't have numbness or tingling, then it's highly unlikely that you have carpal tunnel syndrome. So that's an easy layman's way to just rule that out for yourself. But really, these uh, positions that we get ourselves in and do repetitively day in and day out are the real conundrum. And that is because, one, they are not physiologic positions. They are often crunched up and with the wrist flex, the elbows flex, the uh, shoulders tight in. And that creates a lack of movement and a lack of stretching that can then lead to a lot of the tendonitis type problems, the cramping, the overuse strains that I see so ubiquitously. Okay, so watch out for the tensing and, and the flexing. What is, would you say, the optimal position to be in and some of the, the best tools that can help you get there easily? Yes, the best position is to be in the position of whether you 
I've only taken one or never taken a piano lesson, but just you've seen plenty of pianists. And generally, the position would be in that at that level of height where your elbows are slightly bent, your wrists are in a neutral position, meaning not bent down and not stretched up too much, as if you're playing at a keyboard. And that's a nice flow position that keeps your shoulders up and out, your elbows slightly bent. And that's a beautiful, fluid way to be able to maintain many, many hours of typing. But also, more importantly, is to take little breaks all the time and really stretch your arms out and jump up and down and move around. And you can, uh, standing desks are fine, and there's various uh, types of ergonomic things, but mainly it's that position where you're not, your hands aren't too high, your hands aren't too low, your wrists are in a fairly neutral position, and your elbows are slightly bent. Okay, now, now I'm reminded of my own piano lesson, so I need to be on a bench sitting perfectly straight. <laughs> Posture is important, which we may talk about. That's an important part, I think, of productivity and creativity, actually. But uh, and it, it was in Carrie's in my book that, that we talked about that because it is important. And, and yes, posture, one of the great things about music lessons in general is the teachers are usually pretty ferocious about maintaining and teaching posture. I'm sitting up straighter right now as, as we speak. <laughs> right, me <Yeah>. too, actually. <laughs> I think my chair encourages me to slouch because of the way it goes. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> thank you. So, all right, we, we've got our ergonomics lesson uh, yes. from the good doctor. Thank you. Uh, well, sure. now I want to hear a little bit about your book, The Creativity Cure. What's the, the main story here? Wow. You know, that was a culmination of a lifetime of work on my wife's part and a lifetime of my work that then helped to influence parts of it. It was her brainchild and my contributions as a good editor, but also knowing a little bit about the hands and about creativity through the hands and so forth. So it was a really fun partnership where I was lucky enough that she did the bulk of the writing and the, and the hard work. And I was able to kind of walk in and do some editing and, and some thinking. And we, we discussed it over many glasses of wine and, and long walks and so forth. But it was a, um, a culmination that kind of morphed as many, I think, creative projects do. It started out as sort of her philosophy of trying to find an alternative treatment regimen, if you will, for mild to moderate anxiety and depression. That was not the psychopharmacologic agents that have obviously a lot of side effects and have been written about to a great extent. And, and again, I, I emphasize mild to moderate because the medications provide a very critical role for many people, but there are also a number of people who may not need them. It was an attempt to provide an alternative to that. That's how it started, and that's what excited the publisher and so forth. But then, and of course, because it was a new idea about using creativity, and we can go through that in different forms in our life, to combat anxiety, depression, and to have generate more, uh, frankly, just a happier existence, not a purely happy existence, that's impossible to achieve, but more happy moments and uh, in our days. And so, but then as we, as the book, once it came out and we were on a book tour and giving a lot of talks and we still give some talks, it was interesting because it morphed into a little bit of a social commentary on where our culture had been and where we have gone. And that a big part of that is the meaning of our hands, what our hands meant to us maybe 75 years ago versus what they mean to us now. That's not just an indictment of culture, but it's actually an observation of culture. And, and I'm 58, and my childhood was very different than my children's childhood. 
So that's something that started bubbling up from this. Again, sort of we learn from the people asking questions. It would generate incredible discussions. And then we became involved in the maker movement, meaning we were asked to speak about that and Vogue knitting and all these different hand-based, really creative activities that can be so life-enhancing and life-affirming. And so that's kind of how it evolved. And it's been a really fun, exciting road, really. That's cool, certainly. Well, I'd love to get a bit of a picture for the the why here to start. And could you share some of the most compelling evidence that you've gathered or seen and would that suggest that creativity is is really a critical element to health and success as opposed to just something that's uh, kind of fun to do when you have some free time? Right. I think there's uh, several ways to look at it. I mean, some very, very extraordinary writers, researchers, but also artists have been quoted to understand the importance of creativity in our lives. One of the greatest, of course, was Picasso. And one of the maybe a little bit sardonic almost uh, observations he made was that everyone is born creative and then it is gradually taught out of us or it leaks from our soul and we don't maintain that. And then we become maybe worker bees, maybe preoccupied with the exigencies of life. And that is a, a huge impediment to some of the beauty that maintaining a creativity in our life can generate. There have been many books written about uh, John Rady, a Harvard uh, psychiatrist, uh, wrote the book Spark, and that looked at the the actual brain science and effects behind not just but physical manual activity and what it does for the brain. Uh, there was a great study uh, out of the University of Virginia that looked at children. It seemed like a simple study. It was comparing handwriting versus uh, working at a keyboard for, for adolescent children. And they were given a, a writing assignment and then they were their brains were monitored and half of them were handwriting that information, and half of them were working on a keyboard. And quickly, what became evident was that the kids who were handwriting were generating longer sentences, using bigger words, having more complex ideas, and writing more volume. And they were given the exact same assignment as the kids who were typing at a keyboard. And that showed that handwriting, which is widely known, especially through calligraphy, is an art form is an art form. And we've eliminated that, in fact, from uh, many, many schools. And so it, this type of cumulative scientific data that book is replete with that gives us these, these uh, I don't know, to, sometimes it's saddening to me, sometimes it's, it's exciting because it, it allows us, it gives us somewhere to go. It gives us something to do, something to achieve, which is to, to in a way, go back to the future a little bit. That's cool. Thank you. All right. Well, so so that's pretty compelling stuff. And you've also have some content that suggests in, in some ways creativity or the lack thereof can in some ways be life or death. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Wow. Yeah. Once you have been exposed to the possibilities of creativity, and most of us have been given crayons, have been given Legos or erector sets or something, and, and it's in us. We feel that joy, that extreme joy. And an example is that uh, my son, who liked to do things, I went down to the basement and I heard a bunch of clatter down there and he was sort of beating up on a broken uh, CD player. 
beating up on it, trying to see how it was made. And I said, Nicholas, let's take it apart. And so we took it apart and we found the speakers and the, the different component parts of this little speaker. And once we took it apart, it was already broken. And at that time, we didn't have the capacity to fix it. But he took those component parts and he made an amazing robot. And we put some casters that were sitting in a corner and so forth. And it ended up, we still have it in our house and people commented all the time. And it was just put together from the broken pieces of a box. And he is still, every time he sees it, he gets happy. He becomes happy. And, and I, frankly, I didn't do enough of that with him. I mean, one of my shortcomings of working too much is that I, I didn't probably do enough of that. But they did also get it from their grandparents, exposure to their grandparents, uh, my parents. And so that is a critical thing is being able to tap back into something that is intrinsic in us all and probably is lying there latent from not having been stimulated enough because of uh, standardized testing and trying to make the best grades and moving forward and trying to get the best job and so forth and so on. And we, we forget that. And I think the biggest thing to hold on to with regard to creativity is the fact that it's still there in everyone and you just need to find your unique ways to tap back into it because it can be a huge improvement on your day-to-day happiness and in feeling okay. Right. It's funny as you share that story about uh, making the robot, I'm reminded of there was one day I was just hanging out with some buddies after we had had a, a party at our apartment the, the previous day. And so lying around, we had some extra like bamboo skewers from like some appetizers or desserts. And, and then there were some balloons hanging around as well, as well as some rubber bands. And so we oh, ended wow. up making a crossbow out of the <laughs> the bamboo skewers and rubber bands. And I'll tell you, the moment we successfully launched a bamboo skewer from this crossbow into a balloon and heard it pop, we were just elated. <laughs> it was, yes, yes, exactly. It was the coolest thing ever. It got me to thinking, I was like, you know what? We would used to do this sort of thing as a kid it's kids all the time, just in terms of like, hey, got some some random idle time, got some random items in front of us. We're just going to do something and, and, and see what happens. And, and it just got me thinking, but I'd say that old guy, I like kids these days. But I, I imagine if you have the problem, quote unquote, of boredom and ubiquitous uh, iPhones, iPads, apps, games, uh, in, infinite Netflix, etc. options, like you will likely address your boredom in in ways that require uh, a lot less effort and creativity just because you can. Yes. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you mentioned boredom because boredom is the engine for creativity. And if we are hyper-stimulated, and certainly there are many, many great things about technology. I was an engineer. I had the first in a Mac that, that Stephen Jobs invented. I bought it and it was a 128K hard drive. And yet now we are so technologically super saturated. There's, there's so much information coming at us in our elevator, in my office building. There's, there's a little window that gives information about the weather, but also about new studies that have come out. It's everywhere. We have it always at our fingertips. And that's great. Everyone, especially kids, knows so much more information than I knew as a kid. But the price you pay for that is no downtime. 
no allowance for being bored and not hyperstimulated because that's when thing ideas sublimate. That just like they did, y'all were a little bored, you'd had the day, you found these bamboo things, you said, we got to do something because we're a little bored. And sure enough, you came up with a cool invention, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and what's funny is that they did a study looking at award-winning scientists, and these were Nobel laureates and so forth, and winning all the major uh, prizes in science. And the only thing, they were trying to find the common denominator for that level of success in scientific research and innovation. And the only thing they could, the single criteria or denominator that was ubiquitous for all of them was they all had a little workshop and a place where they puttered, a place where they just played with gadgets and gizmos and maybe repaired watches or lawnmowers or whatever. They had that mental freedom of using their hands, doing something that wasn't intensely mental and education-based, but they were doing something that was allowing the sublimation of new ideas to come. And this was where they were actually having their, sometimes their eureka moments, which is just super cool. And it's where they were getting flow too, which you know in in jazz music and so forth, flow is where improvisation comes from. I mean, it's generated, it comes from improvisation where you lose yourself. Time, it becomes immeasurable. You just, it feels like you're just in another world. It stimulates brain chemicals as well as the soul. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like that that notion of the puttering and the non-intensity. We had a previous guest, Bruce Daisley, mentioned that Aaron Sorkin, uh, the writer, mm-hmm. found he had his best ideas in the shower. So yeah. he had a shower installed in his office and took something like <laughs> six or plus showers a day <laughs> I love to get more of these ideas. And I, I love I love that kind that's, of just extremeness. You know, it's like this works. It's a little odd, but I don't care. I'm going to do it, <laughs> and, and it worked for him. I'm going to do it six times more than everybody else. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Well, so that you sort of lay out a bit of specific game plan in terms of a five-part prescription yeah. in your creativity cure. Mm-hmm. What are these five parts? Yeah, so the five-part prescription, or the 5PP, as we called it, are insight, movement, mind rest, your own two hands, and mind shift. And insight, if you'd like for me to just go through them quickly, insight is based on why we make good decisions, why we make bad decisions, knowing ourselves, how we get from how we got from point A to point B, point B. Often it's some hindsight involved and some wisdom gained from failures, from successes, from putting that all together and really looking at, you know, having that uh, one of the psychological terms is observing egos, where we can step out of ourselves and look objectively at ourselves and say, okay, well, you know, I was kind of a buffoon when I said that or did that. And, and I, that's a pattern there. Or, you know, I have a tendency to always want to support the underdog. I mean, Sherlock Holmes was an infracaninophile, one of my favorite early words, and that is lover of the underdog. And I find that when I turn on, a, unless I'm a rabid fan of one particular team, if I turn on any sports thing, I generally am supporting, I want the one who's losing to win. Mm-hmm. And that's just a weird thing. But the point is, that's who I am. That's part of me. And that's some insight. And that can be great or it can be not great if you're making business decisions and so forth and so on. Movement is, as you would imagine, is based on the enormous body of evidence that shows that 
how important psychologically, cognitively, and physiologically exercise is. And it can be any form. It doesn't mean we need to be running marathons every day. It doesn't mean we need to be doing pelotons and everything else. It just means that we need to be moving our bodies. We can be walking, especially if it's in nature, it's even better, but we need to be moving our bodies. We can't be sitting sedentary and and expect to have a, a bountiful and curious life, both physically as well as cognitively and psychologically. That very good study came out of Harvard that showed that just doing household chores, home improvements, if you do that consistently on a daily basis, you had a much better health index and much better longevity with better quality of life during that longevity. And I'd love to get your take. We talk about movement from a creativity perspective. Yeah. They say, you know, studies have shown that walking's great and, and nature and such. I, I'm wondering if, if you're doing like the super intense movements, like sprint intervals or deadlifts mm-hmm. and squats, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that does a plenty for your body, but does that do as much for you creatively or is it just me? When I'm sprinting, I don't think I'm getting. It doesn't seem like I'm getting the same great ideas I get when I'm, uh, you know, ambling along, you know, at uh, three miles per hour or slower. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. I think it's a very, very good point. If it's too intense, then it's probably going to become more core physiologic, almost primitive. You go down to your primitive reflexes, you're breathing, and you stop thinking. However, the upside to the more vigorous exercise, if you're capable of it, is the beta endorphin factor, right? You can actually stimulate the brain uh, with the beta endorphins, which are also painkillers. Those are stimulants, and that can kind of play into that. And that can become a form of addiction. Uh, Haruki, what was his name? Murakami wrote that book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And it's really not what he talks about when he talks about running. It's really about the mental freedom and the thinking that goes on when he's doing, not sprinting, but the longer distance running, as you deduced. And many, many people have talked about walking their books, jogging their books, uh, whatever they're coming up with, that that's the way that they really stimulate the new thought and the new chapters and the new ideas for any creative project that they're doing. Okay, cool. And what's next? Yeah, so mind rest. That's the kind of the opposite, really, but not always. So mind rest is where we must, must give ourselves that downtime, that unplugging, that boredom, that ability for to create the space for ideas to rise up and bubble up and give us the help us with our insight and so forth. Mind rest can take many, many forms. As you know, yoga is an excellent, excellent expenditure of time for that regard because it is so body mind linked and based to relax you and allow the ideas to come up i know that there have been times and i don't do much yoga myself i'd love to but i just don't really have the time for it but there have been times when i've been doing yoga in a random class uh, somewhere and i'll just start crying i'll just start crying it is something it just does something it makes something rise up you know, it's not like I'm having a specific thought or a sadness or anything, but it will happen. And so it's it's really cool. But mind rest can also come from just 
this unplugging. As you may know, there's the science that talks about the dopamine release when we get pings and pongs and various notifications coming from our devices. Every time that happens, especially for younger people, it actually creates a releases uh, biochemicals in our brain, and that can actually become an addiction. And so the ability to step away from that and give yourself that that respite from that intensity of the the constant onslaught of information and connectivity it is critical to one's psychological and physical well-being. Mm-hmm. And then brings us to what I think was probably the most original part uh, was uh, Carrie's and and my ideas on uh, your own two hands. Uh, we did a huge amount of research. Carrie did more of it than I did by far, looking historically and then up to date on what is the importance of your own two hands in terms of mental and, and physical well-being and cognitive health. And the coolest pure neuroscientific fact I can give you is that when you're in medical school, you learn about something called the homunculus, which is this funny little person cartoon figure that shows the mapping of the different parts of our body on our somatosensory cortex, which is the upper, bigger, most important part of our brain that grew when we started making tools in prehistoric times. And 60%, 60%, fully 60% of all the neurons in our somatosensory cortex are devoted just to our hands, just mm-hmm. our hands. And we stimulate that by doing, by touching, by tactile, by something as simple as folding clothes, washing dishes, reading a book, handwriting, calligraphy, knitting, all sorts of hand-based activities, carpentry, gardening. What's interesting is we do not stimulate that part of our brain when we are typing at a keyboard or texting on a, on a smartphone. How about that? Yeah. And it's just weird because it's not one of the primitive hand-based movements that how we evolved. Now, maybe one day in another 200 years, maybe that will be stimulating our brain, but it's not now. And that's why it's so important to do other hand-based activities. It was really cool when people sort of latched back onto this idea it was extraordinary the stories that people would tell thinking back to recent times when they did something that just made them super happy. And so often it was something random and hand-based. I know that one of the things that my dad used to do with the kids is take them and find a piece of driftwood. They would come back and they would sand it down. They would clean it the dirt off, they would sand it, they would stain it, they would build a little base for it, they would use a router to go around the edge of the base. It would be a day-long project, but that involved the connectivity, the human connection of doing that, involved being outside in nature, and involved using their hands meaningfully. It was kind of the whole package, and it um, it was really bountiful for them in that regard. But the hands are critical. And Anaxagoras, I think, said the man was given hands because he was given spirit. And that is a really cool idea. And it's true because they become our way of touching, feeling, interacting with the world, but also giving back to the world. And of course, the most beautiful example of that are the artists and musicians amongst us who produce such beautiful works, better people and happier people. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. And then mind shift is the last. And mind shift is 
You can think of more as the wonderful pie you've made from all the ingredients of the other four. It's that actionable, if you will, who we become if we can really deeply go into the insight movement, mind rest in your own two hands. We shift our minds. We feel differently. We behave differently in the world. We treat ourselves differently. And so that's really the the culmination of that and, and the hope. Well, well, that's fun. Thanks for orienting us to the big picture there. You know, could you give us your take in terms of, boy, if, if there's something that just seems to really release a lot of creative new idea brilliance per, you know, minute of, of effort, you know, on our part, uh, what would some of those uh, very top practices be? Well, I think that really is different for everyone. And so what I would say the exercise would be to Think back to something you did that was hand-based. It could have been last year. It could have been 30 years ago. It could have been 10 years ago. Think back to something that you remember that created a strong sense of pride, freedom, self-esteem, happiness, joy, glow, something like that. Think back to that one thing and see if you can reclaim that. Reclaim that and see if you can't start incorporating that in little bits and pieces into your life. What's cool about any project and art form is that it doesn't have to be great. It just has to be from you. It can be the objectively the ugliest thing around, but if it made you happy to make it, who cares? Who cares? It's about the process and the project. Sonia Lubomirsky, a very uh, well-known researcher, said, show me a happy person and I'll show you a project. And so it can be, oh, you know, one of the most recent things is cleaning out clutter, decluttering. And that's a really interesting idea about tending to your your space, tending to your space. But honestly, I, I wish I could give you one, but it's so different for everyone. And everybody has that. And just it's taking the time, giving yourself the the mind rest, but do the actionable thing, which is to think about it, think hard on it and figure out one or two things that once brought you great pleasure and try to reproduce them. And if not, just go out and go to a maker fair or take up, you know, start drawing something or building something or take a cooking class. I mean, cooking is a wonderfully creative and manual based activity that many of us don't think about when we're doing. And so uh, I think that's what I would say. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Well, I do want to hit that clutter point in particular. Marie Kondo on Netflix now, very popular. We went to town decluttering a baby closet, and it was quite satisfying to have all those container store bins uh, neatly labeled, etc. So uh, what is the impact on, on clutter and creativity? Wow. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I spent all this weekend talking about that. All this weekend, we talked about Marie Kondo. I mean, she is so excited about her and her work. And she knew about her before, but somehow, since she's now on Netflix and just, it's just, she's a really special person. It's really cool because the impact is that, yes, there are stories about, I use the term very loosely, but the mad scientists, you know, the, the image, the, the caricature, <laughs> if you will, of someone with just stuff everywhere, not knowing, you know, piles of papers and manuscripts and everything everywhere and tools and, and beakers and so forth and not knowing where anything is and somehow, you know, inventing. But in reality, that doesn't happen that much. And, and, but we need to be careful. There is, you know, if you see a perfectly pristine desk, 
there may not be anything happening on that, or someone may be extra obsessional about that, and that may not be stimulating creativity in any way. On the other hand, an overfull desk where you can't remember where you put this or that can be frustrating. So it's it's balance. It's about balance. Now, Marie Kondo carries that to one arena of extreme, and I, I don't use the term extreme in a negative way. It's really organizing your life. There is great peace and and almost quietude that can come from your space being tended to and being organized. It's not just about being able to see things and find things. It's about the act of doing it. That's a mechanical, manual activity, organizing your space, whether you're throwing out, putting in boxes or uh, you know, putting all your shoes in boxes or putting all your tools and organizing them and all the little random nuts and bolts and so forth. It's a form of tending to you and your space and your home and wherever you might live. And so there's no question that it's, I think, very similar to weeding a garden. I think it's very similar because you're allowing things to grow, ideas, your space, your life, and so forth. And look, she's far smarter than I am, and I'm fascinated by it. And I think it's a really cool way to start the process of creativity. Start it by just what you did. Clean out that space. And you have the connectivity, the familial connectivity of doing that, the side-by-side doing a task, but you also have, it's a clear task that's somewhat disconnected from technology, right? From the buzzes and bings and, and so forth. And it also makes you feel just frankly good afterwards. So good, more power to you. Yes, and I guess in my experience when it comes to being surrounded by clutter or not clutter is that the and i forgot the scientific term for it sort of like city or, or something like that the notion that i have my resources are limited like i don't have it's similar to not having enough time or money or energy or manpower to complete something that's important to you and you feel a little bit of that, that, that stress, that tension, that anxiety, that, I don't know if this is going to happen. And thus that, that kind of could short circuit some creative resourcefulness in the brain. And, and likewise, if the space as a resource is, is non-conducive to accomplishing that, which is, is important and, and top of mind to you, I think in my experience that further contributes to the, the stressed, uncomfortable position of feeling resource constrained. And so it's sort of like not just the process of tidying, but the end result of, ah, what a lovely clear space uh, puts me in a better uh, state of mind to feel resourceful and creative. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's very eloquent. I like that because you're, you're saying space becomes a, a resource, a raw ore that can be used to build on and build with. And the space as an emptiness can then be filled by feeling, by ideas, by whatever. And and the clutter can be a distraction. Yes. I like the way you put it. You got more poetry on there. <laughs> well, anyway, it's cool. It's just funny that you, it's funny that you brought that up today. It's perspicacious because we, we just, that's all we talked about this weekend. <laughs> Well, I'd be curious, uh, Alton, anything else you want to talk about uh, creativity and, and getting more of that flowing in the workplace before we shift gears to talk about some of your favorite things? Right. I think you've said a lot, and I, I, I love the way you covered it, but I hope that one of the biggest components to 
But creativity, I believe, is curiosity. It's curiosity. And it's also humility. And being willing to just entertain anything. Be open and curious and humble enough to think that something else can enhance you and make you feel better, make you better. And so I think that's a big part of creativity is that curiosity and that humility to take on new ideas. I dug Alton's take on adopting new ideas that can make you feel better. And I think that philosophy applies to everywhere and everything, including the bathroom. Yeah, I just recently adopted a new deodorant that's made me feel better. It's from Native, and the company Native is all about safe, effective, simple ingredients. And I can attest that their eucalyptus and mint deodorant is getting it done for me. They've got over 7,000 five-star customer reviews, so I'm not the only one. It's free of aluminum, parabens, talc, and all kinds of stuff you don't want, but full of natural goodies you do want that make it antimicrobial, moisturizing, and wetness-absorbing. It's free of animal testing, and it's free in the shipping and the returns. I've been impressed that it holds up during intense days. I even wore it recently on a multi-day hospital stay as my wife gave birth to our daughter. Aww. And through these maximum motions and minimal showering, my underarms were staying dry and pleasant smelling. So my pits took zero moments of my attention during that special time, which I appreciated. For 20% off your first purchase, you can visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code AWESOME during checkout. Again, for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code AWESOME at checkout. Awesome. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, gosh. Well, my wife gets tired of hearing my quotes. I mean, I have so many quotes that I, I love because of the people that, that wrote them and so forth and, and what the really who those people were. One of my favorite was from Voltaire in his uh, short novel, Zadig or Man's Fate, where he, the, the quote is that on such slender threads as these do the fates of mortals hang. And you think, oh, well, that's dark, but it's actually not. It was uh, a guy who was accused of having an affair with uh, one of the sultan's mistresses and or wife or whatever, he was about to be executed. And then the parrot who happened to be in the room actually parroted and spoke and basically showed that he had not had an affair because he, he spoke about who had had the affair. And so Zadig was was freed and, and it was on such slender threads as these as a random parrot. But But the fact is that I think that was metaphorical for so many things that can happen in our life. And it, it goes back to creativity is is just you never know who you're going to meet, what you're going to hear, and what you're going to find. And it's, I think, having the, allowing yourself the mental freedom to to explore and, and absorb and be open to and be curious about is, is I think, critical to a, a fairly bountiful existence, in my opinion. One of my favorite quotes of all time was by Winston Churchill. I, I happen to collect books of every book I've ever read. Basically, I've collected a hardbound version of it. And I've been doing that since I was kind of a, a late adolescent. And he said, uh, but now I don't have enough time to read. And he made me feel better because he, he said, always surround yourselves with books. Even if you don't have time to read them, just fondle them once in a while. <laughs> and it's true. I, I'll do that sometime. I'll just open it up and just read five lines of some book I've read before. And it just makes me happy. It just takes me back to a different place. So those are those are a couple of, uh, I guess, fun ones that I like. Oh, thank you. And could you share with us a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Wow. 
of mine or just uh, in oh just anything you've encountered that made you go wow that is amazing insight from this research yeah um Oh gosh, because I'm steeped in this, it's hard to separate from the research that I work with day to day and talk to patients about versus what in the book and so forth. Uh, I think that one of the most exciting ones really was the Kelly Lambert did a, a significant amount of research on lifting depression and showed that the meaningful hand use actually changes the brain's biochemistry. And that to me is so profound, not just about making you happy and making you feel satisfied and making you feel productive and so forth, but actually changes the brain's chemistry, actually changes serotonin uptake, changes dopamine release. And it's just fascinating to me that we can change our brain chemistry by using our hands. Yes, thank you. And amongst all these books you fondle and have read, uh, do you have a favorite? <laughs> well, my all-time favorite is Don Quixote. I read it too many times, and I just, I don't know, for some reason, it uh, has been, uh, it, it's just continues to fascinate me. And it's part about fantasy, part about uh, just living in a dream and, and having goals, whether they're achievable or not. And I think we should always have goals for that. And that's one of my all-time favorites that I still talk about. And of human bondage uh, spoke to me greatly, Somerset Mom, because it was about a boy who then went to medical school and had a, uh, you know, had a bad leg and so forth. And it just, uh, it, it, it spoke to me. I ended up going to medical school, but I don't, I don't think it was because of that book, but it, it influenced me greatly in terms of uh, the trials and tribulations that one can, can uh, work through and persevere through and, and still achieve. Thank you. How about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? Favorite tool. This may not seem like a tool, but it is to me. And that is a the ability to make true human connection. And what I mean by that is the ability to make a true human connection, I think, involves empathy. It involves creativity. Uh, it involves a curiosity about that other person, more curiosity about that person than you are about yourself. And if you show those capacities along with being honest and telling the truth, I think that the power that that can engender in you is that you then can take that person and a piece of that person and use it, use them, not only use them in a derogatory way, but use that to build your foundation of life because we need people. We are intrinsically social creatures and we need to have people around us that we understand, who understand us, who trust us, and whom we trust. And you cannot do that without making a true connection with them. How about a, a favorite nugget, something you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks when you share it? Well, you mentioned posture. It, I mean, studies have been done on it, and, and I, I'm, I'm saying this half-jokingly, but, but it's true because I end up talking about it with a lot of people, a lot of patients, because it can, it can generate musculoskeletal problems if we have poor posture. But also, posture is, is so critically important to how the world perceives us and how we interact with the world. And so I'm, I'm always telling my kids, I tell patients, especially younger patients, our culture, because of our involution of our bodies from reaching down and hugging our smartphones, which are close to our bodies and, and our heads are down, we tend to close ourselves off to the world. So posture, and, I'm, and I mean that in the broadest sense, opening up 
not just our breathing and our, but it opens up our world to us and it makes other people perceive us differently. So uh, posture is the most important thing in a certain way, as long as we are already taking care of character and truth telling and uh, taking responsibility for our own actions. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Well, look, I think my wife is pretty wicked smart, and I've learned so much from her in her life, and, and she was the brains behind the book. And it's not a silly read, and it's not a quick read. It's, it's, it takes some time to get through it, but it has, it's based on a lot of science. And so I have to, have to say that, that that would be important. But beyond that, I would say reading anything that stimulates you and takes you away is what I hate to be generalized in that sense, uh, rather than giving you specific books, but I believe in that. The other great book that I would recommend to anyone who has younger children would be Last Child in the Woods. It's about the importance of nature and the importance of getting back to the basics. I mean, it's based on a great body of research. Okay. Well, Alton, thanks so much for, for sharing this good stuff. I, I wish you and, and your wife uh, much luck in your, your medicine and your, your speaking and writing and sharing and creativity and all you're up to. And cleaning out our closets. Absolutely. <laughs> you may need some luck for that. I'm going to need some. Boy, it was really, really a pleasure to talk to you, Peter. It's very stimulating and it made me think in ways that I haven't thought in a while. And I appreciate the time and the interest. I really love the way Alton very succinctly said that boredom is the engine for creativity. And I think that I've been guilty at times of ensuring that every moment is either productive or occupied or bringing me entertainment. If you are on a train, you know, maybe you're watching something on your phone or your iPad. If you're even walking, you are listening to a podcast, maybe. And, and there's some beauty, of course, in the enrichment that uh, podcasts provide. Of course, I'm a fan of that. But I think it's also important to make sure that there is some time in the day that you have the opportunity to be bored. Because if there's none of that time, then there's less fodder for the eureka, cool, creative ideas. So I dig that. Hope you dug it too. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to albums we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F408. If you haven't already, I recommend you punch the subscribe button. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It is Jesse Newton with some huge pro tips on why and how to simplify your work life. If you got too many meetings, too many emails, too many things, he has got some excellent tips for addressing that very issue. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.